Book Five, Chapter Thirty Six of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Five, Chapter Thirty Six. Langham parted with Rose at the corner of Martin Street. She would not let him take her any farther. I will say nothing," she whispered to him as he put her into a passing hansom, wrapping her cloak warmly round her. "Till I see you again, to-morrow." "'Tomorrow morning,' he said, waving his hands to her, and in another instant he was facing the north wind alone. He walked on fast towards Beaumont Street, but by the time he reached his destination midnight had struck. He made his way into his room, where the fire was still smouldering, and, striking a light, sank into his large reading-chair, beside which the volumes used in the afternoon lay littered on the floor. He was suddenly penetrated with the cold of the night, and hung shivering over the few embers which still glowed. What had happened to him? In this room, in this chair, the self-forgetting excitement of that walk, scarcely half an hour old, seems to him already long past, incredible almost. And yet the brain was still full of images, the mind still full of a hundred new impressions. That fair head against his breast, those soft confiding words, those yielding lips. Ah, it is the poor, silent, insignificant student that has conquered. It is he, not the successful man of the world, that has held that young and beautiful girl in his arms, and heard from her the sweetest and humblest confession of love. Fate can have neither wit nor conscience to have ordained it so. But fate has so ordained it. Langham takes note of his victory, takes dismal note also that the satisfaction of it has already half departed. So the great moment has come and gone. The one supreme experience which life and his own will had so far rigidly denied him is his. He has felt the torturing thrill of passion. He has evoked such an answer as all men might envy him. And, fresh from Rose's kiss, from Rose's beauty, the strange, maimed soul falls to a pitiless analysis of his passion, her response. One moment he is at her feet in a voiceless trance of gratitude and tenderness. The next is nothing what it promises to be, and has the boon already, now that he has it in his grasp, lost some of its beauty, just as the sea-shell drawn out of the water, where its lovely iridescence tempted eye and hand, loses half its fairy charm. The night wore on. Outside an occasional cab or cart would rattle over the stones of the street, an occasional voice or step would penetrate the thin walls of the house, bringing a shock of sound into that silent upper room. Nothing caught Langham's ear. He was absorbed in the dialogue which was to decide his life. Opposite to him, as it seemed, there sat a spectral reproduction of himself, his true self, with whom he held a long and ghastly argument. "'But I love her! I love her! A little courage, a little effort!' and I too can achieve what other men achieve. I have gifts, great gifts. Mere contact with her, the mere necessities of the situation, will drive me back to life, teach me how to live normally, like other men. I have not forced her love. It has been a free gift. Who can blame me if I take it, if I cling to it, as the man freezing in a crevasse clutches the rope thrown to him? To which the pale spectre self said scornfully, Courage and effort may as well be dropped out of your vocabulary. They are words that you have no use for. Replace them by two others, habit and character. 
slave as you are of habit of the character you have woven for yourself out of years of deliberate living what wild unreason to imagine that love can unmake can recreate what you are you are to all eternity bear your own burden but for god's sake beguile no other human creature into trusting you with theirs but she loves me impossible that i should crush and tear so kind so warm a heart poor child poor child i have played on her pity i have won all she had to give and now to throw her gift back in her face oh monstrous oh inhuman and the cold drops stood on his forehead but the other self was inexorable you have acted as you were bound to act as any man may be expected to act in whom will and manhood and true human kindness are dying out poisoned by despair and the tyranny of the critical habit but at least do not add another crime to the first what in god's name have you to offer a creature of such claims such ambitions you are poor you must go back to oxford you must take up the work your soul loathes grow more soured more embittered maintain a useless degrading struggle till her youth is done her beauty wasted until you yourself have lost every shred of decency and dignity even that decorous outward life in which you can still wrap yourself from the world think of the little house the children the money difficulties she spiritually starved every illusion gone you incapable soon of love incapable even of pity conscious only of a dull rage with her yourself the world bow the neck submit refuse that long agony for yourself and her while there is still time kismet kismet and spread out before langham's shrinking soul there lay a whole dismal hogarthian series image leading to image calamity to calamity till in the last scene of all the maddened inward sight perceived two figures two grey and withered figures far apart gazing at each other with cold and sunken eyes across dark rivers of sordid, irremediable regret. The hours passed away, and in the end the spectre-self, a cold and bloodless conqueror, slipped back into the soul which remorse and terror, love and pity, a last impulse of hope, a last stirring of manhood, had been alike powerless to save. The February dawn was just beginning when he dragged himself to a table and wrote. Then for hours afterwards he sat sunk in his chair, the stupor of fatigue broken every now and then by a flash of curious introspection. It was a base thing which he had done. It was also a strange thing psychologically. And at intervals he tried to understand it, to track it to its causes. At nine o'clock he crept out into the frosty daylight, found a commissionaire who was accustomed to do errands for him, and sent him, with a letter, to Lerwick Gardens. On his way back he passed a gunsmith's, and stood looking fascinated at the shining barrels. Then he moved away, shaking his head, his eyes gleaming as though the spectacle of himself had long ago passed the bounds of tragedy, become farcical even. I should only stand a month, arguing with my finger on the trigger. In the little hall his landlady met him, gave a start at the sight of him, and asked him if he ailed, and if she could do anything for him. He gave her a sharp answer, and went upstairs, where she heard him dragging books and boxes about as though he were packing. A little later, Rose was standing at the dining-room window of number 27, looking on to a few trees bedecked with rime which stood outside. 
the ground and roofs were white, a promise of sun was struggling through the fog. So far everything in these unfrequented Camden Hill roads was clean, crisp, enlivening, and the sparkle in Rose's mood answered to that of nature. Breakfast had just been cleared away. Agnes was upstairs with Mrs. Laban. Catherine, who was staying in the house for a day or two, was in a chair by the fire, reading some letters forwarded to her from Bedford Square. "'He would appear some time in the morning,' she supposed. With an expression half rueful, half amused, she fell to imagining his interview with Catherine, with her mother. Poor Catherine! Rose feels herself happy enough to allow herself a good honest pang of remorse for much of her behaviour to Catherine this winter. How thorny she has been! How unkind often to this sad, changed sister! And now this will be a fresh blow. But afterwards, when she's got over it, when she knows that it makes me happy, that nothing else would make me happy, then she will be reconciled, and she and I perhaps will make friends all over again from the beginning. I won't be angry or hard over it. Poor Cathy! And with regard to Mr. Flaxman, as she stands there waiting idly for what destiny may send her, she puts herself through a little light catechism about this other friend of hers. He behaved somewhat oddly towards her of late. She begins now to remember that her exit from Lady Charlotte's house the night before had been a very different matter from the royally attended leave-takings presided over by Mr. Flaxman, which generally befell her there. Had he understood? With a little toss of her head she said to herself that she did not care if it was so. I've never encouraged Mr. Flaxman to think I was going to marry him. But, of course, Mr. Flaxman will consider she has done badly for herself. So will Lady Charlotte, and all her outer world. They will say she is dismally throwing herself away, and her mother, no doubt influenced by the clamour, will take up very much the same line. What matter? The girl's spirit seemed to rise against all the world. There was a sort of romantic exultation in her sacrifice of herself, a jubilant looking forward to remonstrance, a wilful determination to overcome it. That she was about to do the last thing she could have been expected to do gave her pleasure. Almost all artistic faculty goes with a love of surprise and caprice in life. Rose had her full share of the artistic love for the impossible and the difficult. Besides, success! To make a man hope and love and live again, that shall be her success. She leaned against the window, her eyes filling, her heart very soft. Suddenly she saw a commissionaire coming up the little flagged passage to the door. He gave in a note, and immediately afterwards the dining-room door opened. "'A letter for you, miss,' said the maid. Rose took it, glanced at the handwriting. A bright flush, a surreptitious glance at Catherine, who sat absorbed in a wandering letter from Mrs. Darcy. Then the girl carried her prize to the window and opened it. Catherine read on, gathering up the mural names and details, as some famished gleaner might gather up the scattered ears on a plundered field. At last, something in the silence of the room, and of the other inmate in it, struck her. "'Rose,' she said, looking up, "'was that someone brought you a note?' The girl turned with a start. A letter fell to the ground. She made a faint, ineffectual effort to pick it up, and sank into a chair. "'Rose, darling!' cried Catherine, springing up. "'Are you ill?' Rose looked at her with a perfectly colourless, fixed face, made a feeble, negative sign, 
and then laying her arms on the breakfast-table in front of her, let her head fall upon them. Catherine stood over her aghast. "'My darling, what is it? Come and lie down. Take this water.' She put some close to her sister's hand, but Rose pushed it away. "'Don't talk to me,' she said with difficulty. Catherine knelt beside her in helpless pain and perplexity, her cheek resting against her sister's shoulder as a mute sign of sympathy. What could be the matter? Presently her gaze travelled from Rose to the letter on the floor. It lay with the address uppermost, and she at once recognised Langham's handwriting. But before she could combine any rational ideas with this quick perception, Rose had partially mastered herself. She raised her head slowly and grasped her sister's arm. "'I'm startled,' she said, a forced smile on her white lips. "'Last night Mr. Langham asked me to marry him. I expected him here this morning to consult with Mamma and you. That letter is to inform me that he made a mistake, and he is very sorry. So am I. It is so—so bewildering.' She got up restlessly and went to the fire as though shivering with cold. Catherine thought she hardly knew what she was saying. The elder sister followed her, and throwing an arm round her, pressed the slim, irresponsive figure close. Her eyes were bright with anger, her lips quivering. "'That he should dare!' she cried. "'Rose! My poor little Rose!' "'Don't blame him,' said Rose, crouching down before the fire, while Catherine fell into the armchair again. "'It doesn't seem to count from you. You have always been so ready to blame him.' Her brow contracted. She looked frowning into the fire, her still colourless mouth working painfully. Catherine was cut to the heart. "'Oh, Rose,' she said, holding out her hands, "'I will blame no one, dear. I seem hard, but I love you so. Oh, tell me, you would have told me everything once.' There was the most painful yearning in her tone. Rose lifted her listless right hand and put it into her sister's outstretched palms. But she made no answer, till suddenly, with a smothered cry, she fell towards Catherine. "'Catherine, I cannot bear it. I, I said I loved him. He, he kissed me. I could kill myself and him.' Catherine never forgot the mingled tragedy and domesticity of the hour that followed, the little familiar morning sounds in and about the house, tradesmen calling, bells ringing, and here, at her feet, a spectacle of moral and mental struggle which she only half understood but which wrung her inmost heart. Two strains of feeling seemed to be present in Rose. A sense of shock, of wounded pride, of intolerable humiliation, and a strange intervening passion of pity, not for herself, but for Langham, which seemed to have been stirred in her by his letter. But though the elder questioned, and the younger seemed to answer, Catherine could hardly piece the story together, nor could she find the answer to the question filling her own indignant heart. Does she love him? At last Rose got up from her crouching position by the fire, and stood, a white ghost of herself, pushing back the bright encroaching hair from eyes that were dry and feverish. "'If I could only be angry, downright angry,' she said, more to herself than Catherine, "'it would do one good.' "'Give others leave to be angry for you,' cried Catherine. "'Don't,' said Rose, almost fiercely, drawing herself away. "'You don't know.' It is for fate. Why did we ever meet? He may read his letter. You must. You misjudge him. You always have. No, no. And she nervously crushed the letter in her hand. Not yet. But you shall read it some time. 
You and Robert, too. Married people always tell one another. It is due to him, perhaps due to me, too. And a hot flush transfigured her paleness for an instant. Oh, my head! Why does one's mind affect one's body like this? It shall not. It is humiliating. Miss Laban has been jilted and cannot see visitors. That is the kind of thing. Cathy, when you finish that document, will you kindly come and hear me practice my last ref? I am going. Good-bye. She moved to the door, but Catherine had only just time to catch her, or she would have fallen over a chair from sudden giddiness. Miserable, she said, dashing a tear from her eyes. I must go and lie down, then, in the proper missish fashion. Mind on your peril, Catherine, not a word to any one but Robert. I shall tell Agnes, and Robert is not to speak to me. No, don't come. I'll go alone. And warning her sister back, she groped her way upstairs. Inside her room, when she had locked the door, she stood a moment upright with the letter in her hand. The blotted, incoherent scrawl, where Langham had for once forgotten to be literary, where every pitiful half-finished sentence pleaded with her, even in the first smart of her wrong, for pardon, for compassion, as towards something maimed and paralysed from birth, unworthy even of her contempt. Then the tears began to rain over her cheeks. "'I was not good enough.' I was not good enough. God would not let me. And she fell on her knees beside the bed, the little bit of paper crushed in her hands against her lips. Not good enough for what? To save? How lightly she had dreamed of healing, redeeming, changing! And the task is refused her. It is not so much the cry of personal desire that shakes her as she kneels and weeps, nor is it mere wounded woman's pride. It is a strange, stern sense of law. Had she been other than she is, more loving, less self-absorbed, loftier in motive, he could not have loved her so, have left her so. Deep, undeveloped forces of character stir within her. She feels herself judged, and with a righteous judgment, issuing inexorably from the facts of life and circumstance. Meanwhile, Catherine was shut up downstairs with Robert, who had come over early to see how the household fared. Robert listened to the whole luckless story with astonishment and dismay. This particular possibility of mischief had gone out of his mind for some time. He had been busy in his East End work. Catherine had been silent. Over how many matters they would have once have discussed with open heart was she silent now. "'I ought to have been warned,' he said with quick decision, "'if you knew this was going on. I am the only man among you.' and I understand Langham better than the rest of you. I might have looked after the poor child a little." Catherine accepted the reproach mutely as one little smart the more. However, what had she known? She had seen nothing unusual of late, nothing to make her think a crisis was approaching. Nay, she had flattered herself that Mr. Flaxman, whom she liked, was gaining ground. Meanwhile, Robert stood pondering anxiously what could be done. Could anything be done? "'I must go and see him,' he said presently. "'Yes, dearest, I must. Impossible the thing should be left so. I am his old friend, almost her guardian. You say she is in great trouble. Why, it may shadow her whole life. No, he must explain things to us. He is bound to. He shall. It may be something comparatively trivial in the way, after all. Money, or prospects, or something of the sort. You've not seen the letter, you say? It is the last marriage in the world one could have desired for her.' "'But if she loves him, Catherine, if she loves him—' 
He turned to her, appealing, remonstrating. Catherine stood pale and rigid. Incredible that she should think it right to intermeddle, to take the smallest step towards reversing so plain a declaration of God's will. She could not sympathise. She would not consent. Robert watched her in painful indecision. He knew that she thought him indifferent to her true reason for finding some comfort, even in her sister's trouble, that he seemed to her mindful only of the passing human misery, indifferent to the eternal risk. They stood sadly looking at one another. Then he snatched up his hat. "'I must go,' he said in a low voice. "'It is right.' And he went, stepping, however, with the best intentions in the world, into a blunder. Catherine sat painfully struggling with herself after he had left her. Then someone came into the room, someone with pale looks and flashing eyes. It was Agnes. "'She just let me in to tell me and put me out again,' said the girl, her whole even, cheerful self one flame of scorn and wrath. "'What are such creatures made for, Catherine? Why do they exist?' Meanwhile Robert had trudged off through the frosty morning streets to Langham's lodgings. His mood was very hot by the time he reached his destination, and he climbed the staircase to Langham's room in some excitement. When he tried to open the door after the answer to his knock bidding him enter, he found something barring the way. "'Wait a little,' said the voice inside. "'I will move the case.' With difficulty the obstacle was removed, and the door opened. Seeing his visitor, Langham stood for a moment in sombre astonishment. The room was littered with books and packing-cases with which he had been busy. "'Come in,' he said, not offering to shake hands. Robert shut the door, and, picking his way among the books, stood leaning on the back of the chair Langham pointed out to him. Langham paused opposite to him, his wavy jet-black hair falling forward over the marble, pale face which had been Robert's young ideal of manly beauty. The two men were only six years distant in age but so strong his old association that Robert's feeling towards his friend had always remained in many respects the feeling of the undergraduate towards the don. His sense of it now filled him with a curious awkwardness. "'I know why you are come,' said Langham slowly, after a scrutiny of his visitor. "'I am here by a mere accident,' said the other, thinking perfect frankness best. "'My wife was present when her sister received your letter.' Rose gave her leave to tell me. I had gone up to ask after them all, and came on to you, of course on my own responsibility entirely. Rose knows nothing of my coming, nothing of what I have to say. He paused, struck against his will by the looks of the man before him. Whatever he had done during the past twenty-four hours, he had clearly had the grace to suffer in the doing of it. "'You can have nothing to say,' said Langham, leaning against the chimney-piece and facing him with black, darkly burning eyes. You know me. Never had Robert seen him under this aspect. All the despair, all the bitterness hidden under the languid student's exterior of every day, had, as it were, risen to the surface. He stood at bay, against his friend, against himself. No, exclaimed Robert stoutly, I do not know you in the sense you mean. I do not know you as the man who could beguile a girl onto a confession of love, and then tell her that for you marriage was too great a burden to be faced. Langham started, and then closed his lips in an iron silence. Robert repented him a little. Langham's strange individuality always impressed him against his will. 
I did not come simply to reproach you, Langham, he went on, though I confess to being very hot. I came to try and find out, for myself only, mind, whether what prevents you from following up what I understand happened last night is really a matter of feeling or a matter of outward circumstance. If upon reflection you find that your feeling for Rose is not what you imagine it to be, I shall have my own opinion about your conduct. But I shall be the first to acquiesce in what you have done this morning. If, on the other hand, you are simply afraid of yourself in harness and afraid of the responsibilities of practical married life, I cannot help begging you to talk the matter over with me and let us face it together. Whether Rose would ever, under any circumstances, get over the shock of this morning, I have not the remotest idea. But, and he hesitated, it seems the feeling you appealed to yesterday has been of long growth. You know perfectly well what havoc a thing of this kind may make in a girl's life. I don't say it will, but at any rate it is all so desperately serious I could not hold my hand. I am doing what is in no doubt wholly unconventional. But I am your friend and her brother. I brought you together, and I ask you to take me into counsel. If you had but done it before— There was a moment's dead silence. "'You cannot pretend to believe,' said Langham at last, with the same sombre self-containedness, "'that a marriage with me would be for your sister-in-law's happiness.' "'I don't know what to believe,' cried Robert. "'No,' he added frankly. "'No, when I saw you first attracted by Rose at Muirwald, I disliked the idea heartily. I was glad to see you separated. A priori I never thought you suited to each other. But reasoning that holds good when a thing is holy in the air— looks very different when a man has committed himself and another, as you have done." Langham surveyed him for a moment, then shook his hair impatiently from his eyes, and rose from his bending position by the fire. "'Elsmere, there is nothing to be said. I have behaved as vilely as you please. I have forfeited your friendship. But I should be an even greater fiend and weakling than you think me if, in cold blood, I could let your sister run the risk of marrying me. I could not trust myself. You may think of the statement as you like. I should make her miserable. Last night I had not parted from her an hour before I was utterly and irrevocably sure of it. My habits are my master's. I believe, he added slowly, his eyes fixed weirdly on something beyond Robert, I could even grow to hate what came between me and them. Was it the last word of the man's life? It struck Robert with a kind of shiver. "'Pray heaven,' he said with a groan, getting up to go, "'you may not have made her miserable already.' "'Did it hurt her so much?' asked Langham, almost inaudibly, turning away, Robert's tone, meanwhile, calling up a new and scorching image in the subtle brain tissue. "'I have not seen her,' said Robert abruptly. "'But when I came in I found my wife, who has no light tears, weeping for her sister.' His voice dropped, as though what he was saying were in truth too pitiful and too intimate for speech. Langham said no more. His face had become a marble mask again. "'Good-bye,' said Robert, taking up his hat with a dismal sense of having got foolishly through a fool's errand. "'As I said to you before, what Rose's feeling is at this moment I cannot even guess. Very likely she would be the first to repudiate half of what I have been saying.' and I see that you will not talk to me. You will not take me into your confidence and speak to me, not only as her brother, but as your friend. And—and and are you going? What does this mean?" 
He looked interrogatively at the open packing-cases. "'I'm going back to Oxford,' said the other briefly. "'I cannot stay in these rooms, in, in these streets.' Robert was sore perplexed. What real, nay, what terrible suffering in the face and manner, and yet how futile, how needless! He felt himself wrestling with something intangible and phantom-like, wholly unsubstantial, and yet endowed with a ghastly indefinite power over human life. "'It's very hard,' he said hurriedly, moving nearer, "'that our old friendship should be crossed like this. "'Do trust me a little. "'You are always undervaluing yourself. "'Why not take a friend into counsel sometimes "'when you sit in judgment on yourself and your possibilities? "'Your own perceptions are all warped.' "'Langham, looking at him, "'thought his smile one of the most beautiful "'and one of the most irrelevant things he had ever seen. "'I will write to you, Ellesmere,' he said, holding out his hand. "'Speech is impossible to me. "'I never had any words except through my pen.' "'Robert gave it up. "'In another minute Langham was left alone. "'But he did no more packing for hours. "'He spent the middle of the day sitting dumb and immovable in his chair. "'Imagination was at work again more feverishly than ever. "'He was tortured by a fixed image of Rose, suffering and paling.' and after a certain number of hours he could no more bear the incubus of this thought than he could put up with the flat prospects of married life the night before. He was all at sea, barely sane, in fact. His life had been so long purely intellectual that this sudden strain of passion and fierce practical interests seemed to unhinge him, to destroy his mental balance. He bethought him. This afternoon he knew she had a last rehearsal at Searle House. Afterwards her custom was to come back from St. James's Park to High Street, Kensington, and walk up the hill to her own home. He knew it, for on two occasions after these rehearsals he had been at Lerwick Gardens, waiting for her with Agnes and Mrs. Laban. Would she go this afternoon? A subtle instinct told him that she would. It was nearly six o'clock that evening when Rose, stepping out from the High Street station, crossed the main road and passed into the darkness of one of the streets leading up the hill. She had forced herself to go, and she would go alone. But as she toiled along she felt weary and bruised all over. She carried with her a heart of lead, a sense of utter soreness, a longing to hide herself from eyes and tongues. The only thing that dwelt softly in the shaken mind was a sort of inconsequent memory of Mr. Flaxman's manner at the rehearsal. Had she looked so ill? She flushed hotly at the thought, and then realised again with a sense of childish comfort the kind look and voice, the delicate care shown in shielding her from any unnecessary exertion, the brotherly grasp of the hand with which he put her into the cab that took her to the underground. Suddenly, when the road made a dark turn to the right, she saw a man standing. As she came nearer, she saw that it was Langham. You! she cried, stopping. He came up to her. There was a light over the doorway of a large, detached house not far off, which threw a certain illumination over him, though it left her in shadow. He said nothing, but he held out both his hands mutely. She fancied rather than saw the pale emotion of his look. "'What?' she said after a pause. "'You think to-night is last night? You and I have nothing to say to each other, Mr. Langham.' "'I have everything to say,' he answered under his breath, 
I have committed a crime, a villainy. And is it not pleasant to you? she said, quivering. I am sorry I cannot help you. But you are wrong. It was no crime. It was necessary and profitable, like the doses of one's childhood. Oh, I might have guessed you would do this. No, Mr. Langham, I am in no danger of an interesting decline. I have just played my concerto very fairly. I shall not disgrace myself at the concert to-morrow night. You may be at peace. I have learned several things to-day that have been salutary, very salutary. She paused. He walked beside her while she pelted him, unresisting, helplessly silent. "'Don't come any farther,' she said resolutely, after a minute, turning her face to him. "'Let us be quits. I was a temptingly easy prey. I bear no malice. Do not let me break your friendship with Robert. That began before this foolish business. It should outlast it. Very likely we should be friends again, like ordinary people, some day. I do not imagine your wound is very deep and—' But no, her lips closed. Not even for pride's sake and retort's sake will she desecrate the past, belittle her own first love. She held out her hand. It was very dark. He could see nothing among her furs but the gleaming whiteness of her face. The whole personality seemed centred in the voice, the half-mocking, vibrating voice. He took her hand and dropped it instantly. "'You do not understand,' he said hopelessly, feeling as though every phrase he uttered, or could utter, were equally fatuous, equally shameful. "'Thank heaven, you never will understand.' "'I think I do.' she said with a change of tone, and paused. He raised his eyes involuntarily, met hers, and stood bewildered. What was the expression in them? It was yearning, but not the yearning of passion. If things had been different, if one could change the self, if the past were nobler, was that the cry of them? Her painful humility, a boundless pity, the rise of some moral wave within her he could neither measure nor explain. These were some of the impressions which passed from her to him. A fresh gulf opened between them, and he saw her transformed on the farther side, with, as it were, a loftier gesture, a nobler stature, than had ever yet been hers. He bent forward quickly, caught her hands, held them for an instant to his lips in a convulsive grasp, dropped them, and was gone. He gained his own room again. There lay the medley of his books, his only friends, his real passion. Why had he ever tampered with any other? It was not love, not love, he said to himself, with an accent of infinite relief as he sank into his chair. Her smart will heal. End of Book 5, Chapter 36